people. Um, just to let you guys know, it, it's kind of a heavy thing in the life of our church, in the life of our community. Um, our dear brother, Frank Waitley, passed away yesterday. And um, Frank has made a huge impact on my life, on many men's lives. And um, I was able to visit with him on Sunday. And uh, my wife and I went out there. And with tears in his eyes, he w had a burden for the men and boys in this community. And he was excited. He wanted to come to this conference. Um, so I'm not sure if this will be the first annual manhood conference, but we're naming this in honor of Frank Waitley. So this is the Frank Waitley Virtue of Manhood Conference. So um, we're, we're doing this in honor of, of him because he is such a godly man. So I thank you guys for coming. Um, over the past couple of months, I've been praying and thinking about just what is going on in our culture you see so many things that are confusing, and I just wanted to, basically, I wanted to just gather the men in our church and say, men, let's, have a, let's just have a moment where we can get together and we can talk about what it means to be a biblical man. And then I just thought about, you know what, let's extend this to the northeastern Colorado, and so I invited other churches. So I think we probably have five or six churches represented here, all the way from Sydney, Nebraska. You guys brought the bus. <laughs> There's some from Fort Morgan, I think. Where's, oh, yeah, yeah, they're excited. Fort Morgan, there's some from Crook, Iliff area. <laughs> we've got um, some from the Brian Church. We, yeah, we got some from Lighthouse Baptist Church. Pastor, yeah. And we've got some from Redeemer. And is there any other, in Emmanuel, is there any other church we're missing that's, that's here? We're, we're, we're excited that you guys are here today. We really are. This is going to be an awesome time. So everywhere we look... I'm just going to start out with some things that you probably already know, but there's just, men are under attack in our culture. Uh, there's a hashtag, some of you that are like older than 60, like what's a hashtag? So um, now it's called X, but on Twitter, there's a, a hashtag that's been trending, it's called at kill all men, like that hashtag, don't you? You can buy t-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. There's a book called Refusing to Be a Man where the author says, quote, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. There's a best-selling fiction writer, science fiction writer, Hugh Howey. He tweeted this, testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything. There was a college student that posted a blog on his experience of going to college and he was confronted by a female student who told him that because he was white and because he was a male, he had privilege and he needed to sit down and shut up and he had nothing to say simply by the fact that he was a man. Now, I don't know if you read the Los Angeles Times. I don't. It's a very liberal magazine, uh, newspaper. But there's an article there that said, the article was, hate on Jordan Peterson all you want, but he's tapping into frustration that feminists shouldn't ignore. And she said this, contemporary feminism's main message to men is not one of equal partnership. Rather, it's repent, abase yourself, and be an obedient feminist ally. 2016, the Public Religion Research Institute found that 46% of American men agree with this statement. Quote, these days society seems to punish men for acting like men. There's a psychologist 
Her name's Erica Komisar. She wrote in the Wall Street Journal, she wrote an article called Masculinity Isn't a Sickness, and she said she's seen an increase in young men who feel emasculated in a society that's hostile to masculinity. 2018, a survey asked millennials what quality they think society values in boys, and here are some of the top ones. Dominance, aggression, sexual prowess, athletic. And here was the sad thing. Only 2% of the boys listed honesty and morality. Most statistics show that the typical church in America is made up of 61% women and 39% men. I don't know if that's true, but we look around at our churches today and our men taking the leadership. Let me ask you guys a question. What do you think right now, according to statistics, what's the average age that boys are exposed to pornography? Anybody want to guess the average age now in America? The boys are exposed to pornography. It's nine. But you guys hit. That was shocking to me. So how many eight or nine-year-old boys do we have in here? Raise your hands. If you're that age. If you're a little bit older. Some of them are even younger. I mean, so there are major problems in our culture when it comes to manhood. And what's the problem here is there, and this is where you, you, you kind of start doing the, the, the fill in the blanks or, or writing notes. I don't know how you guys do, do it, but um, there's two primary false choices. Two primary false choices. Because there is a void in culture right now with this whole issue of manhood and masculinity, men and boys are looking to the wrong sources, wrong choices. Now, some of these aren't necessarily bad, but they are secular. A lot of people go to Jordan Peterson as the go-to guy. 2018, he released his best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. I can tell you by experience how many young men I know watch Jordan Peterson videos on YouTube to understand how to be a man. Now, some of what Jordan Peterson says is okay, but he is not a Christian. Men are flocking to Jordan Peterson. Joe Rogan is another source, another popular source where men go to. His Spotify podcast is one of the top podcasts out there. uses a lot of foul language. But he's a former UFC champion. He, he's, he's kind of the manly man, and a lot of men are drawn to Joe Rogan. Jocko Willink. I like Jocko Willink. He's got a good book on leadership. He's the former Navy SEAL. He writes a lot of books on leadership. Nothing wrong with Jocko Willink, but he's kind of a source that people go to for manliness. But probably the most toxic, and you may have never heard of this guy, but some of you that are younger probably do, Andrew Tate. Anybody heard of Andrew Tate? He's a former professional kickboxer. He's now a social media influencer. He was arrested in Romania for human trafficking, for prostitution. He lives this ultra-extravagant lifestyle. He likes to get fit. He's a buff guy. Um, he's a misogynist. And so a lot of young men are drawn to Andrew Tate. And he is like the epitome of, of toxic masculinity. Even Missouri Senator Josh Hawley has written a book called Manhood, the masculine virtues America needs. There are websites that are popping up all over the place as support groups for men to help them in their manhood journey. There's 
a website called everyman.com. There's the Mankind Project. There's the Journeyman. These are non-Christian groups, support groups, that help men tap into what it means to be a man. So men are looking all over the place for help, for direction. Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink, Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson, these websites. They're looking all over the place. How can I be a manly man? So that's the one false choice. Go to a secular source to understand what it means to be a manly man. Some of it's good, some of it's toxic. Now, here's the other extreme. Here's the other false choice. The other choice, the other end of the spectrum, is that boys and young men are bombarded with the LGBTQ transgender homosexual movement. There is an effeminization of culture. Now, let me just say this. I'm going to say a lot of things. We may get shut down on Facebook, but that's okay. (laughs) I'll find out later. It's okay for women to be feminine. God made them that way. It is not okay for men to be effeminate. There is a movement in our culture to have men look at social media influencers and be cowardly effeminate. Now, I want you to think about it. Some of you are older than me. Some of you are younger. But think about how fatherhood has changed in sitcoms. Some of you may remember Leave it to Beaver. Remember Ward Cleaver? Some of you remember Mike Brady on the Brady Bunch. Whatever you have to say about Bill Cosby, at least in the 80s, the Cosby Show. So in the olden days, there was at least some portrayal of a good father on sitcoms that helped his children understand problems, and there was always a positive ending. But now almost all of the fathers in sitcoms today are portrayed as buffoons, idiots, cowardly. There's just, you know, there's nothing positive. So our culture is in a horrendous state of confusion about what it means to be a man. You've got toxic masculinity. You've got LGBTQ transgender effeminism. And then on the, on the other, uh, also with that, and I don't know if you've experienced this, maybe on the college campus or maybe you know, in other places, you're told to sit down and shut up simply because you're a man. You have nothing to say or to contribute. And by your nature as a man, you are automatically an oppressor. Regardless of whether you've ever abused anybody or done anything, you're automatically, because you're a man, you're an oppressor, you're an abuser. Now, here's what often happens. Here's what I'm seeing, especially among young men. Young men want to be manly. They want direction. So what they do is they simulate manhood through video games and pornography. They simulate it. They want to be brave. They want to make a difference. They want to be manly. And the only examples they have are, I can fulfill that in a video game, or I can do that through pornography, or I've got all these things in culture that are giving me confusion. So let me just say this. There's nothing new under the sun. Since the fall of Adam, the Bible has given us examples where men were abusive, manipulative, and toxic, as well as examples of men that were passive and cowardly. So let's just, let's just go on a journey. This is going to be just a real quick journey, but let's look. Biblical examples of toxic masculinity. 
What are some biblical examples of toxic masculinity? Now, I've given you a, a book of recommended or a list of recommended readings, and this is from one of those books. Uh, Michael Clary says, men tend to be more competitive, more fearless, more prone to violence, more confident, and more self-assured than women. These characteristics can be sinfully expressed as domineering, angrily, angry, sexually promiscuous, contentious, divisive, and lazy. And we'll talk a little bit about how God's made men. Let's think about Cain. What did Cain do? In jealousy, he killed his brother. That's like the first example of, of masculinity gone wrong. Anger, murder. You got Laban. He deceived Jacob. He was an unscrupulous manipulator. You go back to Genesis chapter 29 and you read about Laban. I just want to just stop real quick. If you read the book of Genesis, everything's there. Shechem. Maybe you didn't know this, and, 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 and sorry if we're going to be dealing with some stuff, so boys, maybe talk to your dads about this. He raped and humiliated a young woman named Dinah. In Genesis 34, 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Biblical example there. What about Pharaoh? He threatened the Israelites. He ordered the genocide of the Hebrew, mid, or the Hebrew children. Exodus 1, 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill them, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. Thankfully, those midwives didn't do that. They defied the Pharaoh. What about Absalom? That was King David's wicked son, he won the hearts of the men of Israel. He rebelled against his father. He committed open acts of sexual immorality. You can go back to 2 Samuel 15 and 16. King Solomon, even as the wisest man, he was seduced by hundreds of women and went after false gods in 1 Kings 11. So the Bible gives a lot of examples of men who went off the rails. All right, what about some biblical examples of passive masculinity? Maybe men that weren't aggressive or manipulators or violent, but maybe they were just passive in their leadership. They didn't show backbone. They, they, they were not leaders. Uh, we can think of Adam. Have you ever thought about that? We'll talk a lot about Adam today. He left his wife vulnerable to the serpent's attacks, and he passively allowed her to eat the fruit, and he took the fruit from her, and he was blamed. He was passive in his leadership in the garden. What about Lot? Lot settled in the wicked town of Sodom. He didn't protect his daughters from evil. He didn't lead his family well. His wife became a pillar of salt. Lot was a passive father. What about King Herod? He was intoxicated by the gyrations of a dancing girl and had John the Baptist beheaded. Matthew 14, 6-9. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Toxic, passive. So there's a lot of cultural examples of confusion there's biblical examples of men that have not been biblical leaders. So, let's ask the question, why have we called this conference the virtue of manhood? 
Is that just kind of a cool title? It comes from the Latin. I don't know if you know this. The Latin root V-I-R means virile or manly. Originally, the word virtue meant manly. Now, it has evolved over the years to mean integrity, honest, dignified. So when you take the etymology of that word, virile, manly, and you combine it with what we understand today, the word virtue means to be a manly, godly man. So the virtue of manhood means to be a biblically godly man. It's a virtue. It means to be courageous. So as we look at the biblical model, I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. Now, obviously, this is written to all of God's people, both men and women. So we don't want to take it out of context and say this only applies to men. But there are some things here in the original language of the Hebrew that help us understand how this does specifically relate to us as men. So we are going to be reading Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. And we're just going to unpack this, and then after we look at this, we're going to break up into some small groups and have some discussion. So let's read this together. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So what I want us to do is I want us to see four truths from this passage of Scripture and how they relate to what it means to be a biblical man. And the first is the most important. If if, if we don't talk about anything else this morning, this is the most important. And it is this. Our identity as men comes first and foremost in the gospel of Christ. Now, I want you to notice this prophecy is in Isaiah 61. This is the passage of Scripture that Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He sits down in the synagogue. He opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read this very passage. And so Jesus says, this entire passage is about me. And so Jesus is preaching the gospel The gospel that we have here in Isaiah 61 that Jesus preached. And so what Jesus has come to do is he's come to bring good news to the poor. Now, poor doesn't mean financially poor. Poor means basically that you are, and this is a word we like to use a lot around here at Emmanuel, so some of you have heard this a lot. We are helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound without Jesus. We are dead in our sins. 
We are poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3, blessed is, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit means you've come to that point where you are utterly spiritually bankrupt. You realize that you have no righteousness. You're not good. You stand condemned before a holy God. You're separated from your sins, and you need Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior. You need the good news of the gospel. You need to be delivered from that state of being in prison. He has come to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound. Now you may think, well, I've never been in prison. Yes, you have. Every single one of us is born in a prison of sin. We are in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to the devil until Christ comes and liberates us. And that's why Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus has come to give you good news. He's come to save you. He's come to release you. He's come to give you eternal life and forgiveness of sins. He's come to set you free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was really talking about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25 where prisoners would be released from their debt and their enslavement. And it was a time of joy and renewal. So what I'm saying is this. You cannot even begin to live out what it means to be a biblical man if you don't have a relationship with Christ. So if you are here today, and I, and I can't assume that you've come here and you know Jesus. If you have not repented of your sins, owned up to your sins, Realize that you are separated from a holy God and you need forgiveness. And the only way you can get that is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where you confess him as Lord. Then you need to do that today. No, nothing else that we do today is going to make sense. You can't do it in your own power. You need to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So if you're here today and you've never done that, I would plead with you. Would you please, in your heart of hearts, cry out to Jesus to save you? Bow the knee to King Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins and he'll give you eternal life. He will come and he will grant you that release from sin and, and you'll be able to be empowered then to, to live to be what it means to be a godly man. So the most important thing we can say today is you can't do this without Jesus. You can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit. Your identity in Christ is the anchor to what helps you to be a godly man. You can't be a godly man unless you are a Christian man. And you can't be a Christian man unless you have Christ as your Savior. So, so we want to start there. It's the year of the Lord's favor. He's come to proclaim good news to the captives. You, all of us, need to be released from our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's where it starts, our identity in Christ. So that's, that's number one, the most important. But here's number two. Salvation brings overwhelming joy. Once you are saved, you have joy. The joy of the Lord becomes your strength. Notice what it says there in verse 3. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, who cry, who are mourning, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now, joy is one of those things that's hard to describe. Here's my best attempt to describe what joy is. It's a feeble attempt, but here's, here's, here's Pastor Sean's definition of joy. You can take it or leave it. Joy is that deep-seated sense of contentment and peace 
in God's sovereignty, regardless of circumstances in which we absolutely trust in His promises. Let me break down that definition just for a moment. It's deep-seated. It's something that's deep in your heart. It's regardless of circumstances. You could, you could be going through the worst of circumstances and still have joy because the Lord has put that joy deep in you. And it's an absolute trust in His sovereignty, His promises. It's not happiness. It's not a feeling. It's not based upon circumstances. It's a deep-seated sense of joy. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let me just say this. In pastoral ministry, I've counseled men over the years who have been bitter men, angry men, unforgiving men. A godly man is not a bitter man. A godly man is a humble, joyful man. And so if you're saved, you should be one of the most joyous men of all. Does your wife and your kids fear that you're going to erupt and they have to walk on eggshells because you're just this simmering, bitter man that's sour all the time? Now, only the Holy Spirit can do that. But salvation brings joy. So number one, you have to have Christ as your Savior. Number two, when you, when you have Christ as your Savior, it, it brings joy in your life. You're a joyful man. All right, let's look at number three. Number three, God has planted us as oaks of righteousness for his glory alone. Now, here's where it gets fun when you look at the original language. Now, in, in our English translations, we see the word oaks of righteousness. Now, literally, that's a terebinth tree, an oak, an oak tree. But interestingly, that word in Hebrew can also mean a strong leader. It has a double meaning. It means a physical tree that has deep roots and, and is fruitful and the strong, mighty tree, but it also can mean, metaphorically, a strong leader. What comes to your mind when you think about an oak tree? A man who's a strong leader. Now, it's very interesting that Isaiah brings up an oak tree here. Because in chapter 1 of Isaiah, we don't have time to go through the whole book of Isaiah. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah is bringing a charge against the nation of Israel for their sin. And notice what he says there. I have it on your sheet there, so you don't have to go back to the, to the beginning of the, of the book. But he's, he's condemning them for their corruption. And this is how chapter 1 starts. And he uses the imagery of an oak tree. But I want you to notice how he starts out in chapter 1. Isaiah 1, 29-31. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. And like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. See, in chapter 1, the oak tree is withering, it's burning, it's, it's, it's weak and powerless. Israel's sinning. And then in chapter 61, because of the gospel, because of this promise of grace, because of the joy of the Lord, you'll be planted as oaks of righteousness. Not a withering oak, not a frail oak, but this powerful oak of righteousness. And I want you to notice something. They will be planted. You don't plant yourself. God plants you as an oak of righteousness. You see, we don't cultivate this identity in our own strength. 
This identity of being an oak of righteousness comes from God planting us. Now, think about planting. Planted an oak of righteousness. This goes back to Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Now, what does it mean to be an oak of righteousness? Now, it does mean that we need to be living godly lives, but this is talking more about what God does to you when he saves you. It's justification by faith alone. It's imputed righteousness. When you become a Christian, when you trust in Jesus for salvation, the righteousness of Christ is credited to you. It's accounted to you. Therefore, God looks at you as not guilty. Not because you're somehow good, but because God has imputed or credited or accounted that righteousness to you. So it's an an outside righteousness that comes to you through Christ alone. And Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, work for your salvation, but believes, trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of a glory of God. So an oak of righteousness, men, means that God has planted us to be godly, righteous, strong men, but for what purpose? Do you see it in the Bible there? For what purpose? Look at the end of verse 3, that he may be glorified, that God may be glorified. Literally in the Hebrew text, that God may look glorious. Okay, so let's just retrace our steps. A a godly biblical man is, number one, one who finds his identity in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Number two, he's a joyful man. The joy of the Lord's strength. And number three, he's planted as an oak of righteousness. He is a strong leader, and he does all things for the glory of God. But here's the fourth thing that we see. He calls, our God calls us to build and rebuild so future generations can find hope in Christ. Look at verse 4. After we've been saved by grace, now obviously this is a prophecy about what's going to happen in in Israel, but as we think about ourselves, as, as we've been saved by grace, as we have the joy of the Lord as our strength, as God has planted us as oaks of righteousness for his glory, what, what do we do? They shall build, verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Now, obviously, this is talking about after the exile. In the immediate context, remember uh, later on, Israel's going to be taken into exile for 70 years. They're going to be allowed to come back. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, what do they do? They rebuild the temple, then they rebuild the wall. So there's this rebuilding of the ruins. Israel has been in ruins for years. Now, I want you to think about our culture. 
Do we not live in a broken down, ruined culture that's been devastated for many generations? One of the goals of being a man is you're a builder and a rebuilder of what's been ruined so that future generations can, th- can thrive. You're a builder, not a terror down. You're a builder of ruins. In other words, you have a long-term vision for your family, for your church, for your community. It reminds me of Nehemiah. Our men have been going through Nehemiah on Monday mornings, and we just finished it last week, but um, some of you men that are, that, that, are, that are here that are in that, this will be a little bit of review for you. But the amazing thing about Nehemiah was he was a layman. He was not a pastor. He was not a priest. He was a layperson that God raised up as the cupbearer of the king, and he saw his city in ruins. And those people had been walking over those rocks for years, and nobody had done anything, and, and it was a shame. And he's burdened that his city lies in ruins. And so in Nehemiah 2.17 Then I said to them, this is Nehemiah speaking in first person, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gate burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So Nehemiah gathers the people, they start rebuilding the wall, and then immediately there's opposition. Tobiah, Sanballat, these Gentile nations and leaders come against the people, and there's, there's automatic problems from the very beginning. But I want you to notice what Nehemiah does. The people are getting weary. The people are getting stressed. The people want to stop. And Nehemiah in chapter 4 says this, Nehemiah 4.14. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. That's the, the Gentile nations, the pagan leaders that are coming. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight. Fight for who? For your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Are you a builder and rebuilder for your sons and daughters, your wives, and your homes? So let me just ask you a very straightforward question as we begin this morning. Number one, the most important. Is your identity in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted Christ? And let me just say this. If you need to talk to someone, I will be hanging around. If you need someone to talk to, there's other pastors here as well. Pastor Justin, Pastor Dustin, Pastor... There's a lot of Justins and Dustins back there. Pastor Ryan, and where's Pastor Kyle? We've got a lot of pastors here that have come. You don't need to talk to me, but find somebody, and we'll, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. So number one, is your identity in Jesus? Number two, is the joy of the Lord your strength? Are you a joyful warrior, or are you bitter? Are you unforgiving? Are you an oak of righteousness? Is your ultimate aim to glorify God? Let me give you my two favorite passages of Scripture. These are my two life verse Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then the last question, are you a builder? 
for the next generation? Are you looking at a culture that's been decimated and lying in ruins? And, and you can just say, well, that's just the way things are going. Or do you say, you know what, I'm going to invest and I'm going to rebuild and I'm going to build so that the future, not just the now, but the future generations will benefit from the godly leadership now. So as we summarize this first session together, we can distill it down to, to this one statement. And I said one statement, there's actually two because there's a period there. So those English teachers there, there's, it's two statements. So here's what we would say. A godly man is a joyful, strong leader who glorifies God and builds for future generations. His ultimate identity comes in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone.